Let us all pray. O God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gracious presence in our midst this morning and for the incredible story of love which we have to study and to apply to our own hearts and minds and lives and which we pray by your grace will make us better servants of yours when we leave this chapel today. Take the gifts which we bring and use them to glorify your Son and to extend his love and mercy to many. O Lord our God, thou only art light and life and love. You are light to all that seek thee and life to all that find thee and love to all that trust thee. Help us to know that now. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm particularly happy this morning to see a daughter of our church, uh, Karen Anderson Blake, who sang for us. Karen also is the voiceover on some singing commercials that you hear on television. And uh, we appreciate her good voice and her singing for us today. And then, of course, it's always a pleasure for me to be with Johnny Ellington. Uh, Richard, I want you to know that Johnny was my helper over in Waynesville 34 years ago. So I hope you last as well. <laughs> I'll never forget Johnny coming to us in Waynesville. He was a great swimming champion at Emory University in Atlanta and went all over the uh, country swimming in meets for Emory. And uh, on the 4th of July, Johnny came by to see me and he said, uh, he always called me Chief and he said, hey Chief, can I have the day off? And I said, why? And uh, he said, well, they're having a swimming meet at Lake Junaluska, and I thought our church could use a little publicity. <laughs> he went out there and won everything. <laughs> we love Johnny, and uh, our prayers will certainly go with him. Now then, we come today to the end of 11 sermons that we've been looking at in the parables of Jesus. The parables are sort of the autobiography of God, showing us his grace. The first of these studies that we made were, was about uh, three sons, two boys that were told to go and work in the vineyard and one said no, and then later repented and went, and one said yes and did nothing. And Jesus, one of the sons, told the story, and he was, of course, the one who said he would do the Father's will and did it. Then we saw the triumph of grace, that even at the 11th hour, God would give salvation to as many as would call upon him. And we saw that contrasted unfavorably with the attitude of the Pharisees who were so reluctant to receive uh, anyone else and who thought that salvation was of merit and not of mercy nor of grace. Then we saw something of the confusion that comes with the a uh, fact that the enemy comes and sows false disciples and false seed in the night and we are startled by people who defect from the faith and Jesus has told us not to be startled that there will be tares among the wheat but that in due time God will separate them. And then we saw a Pharisee and a publican come into the temple to pray one who smote himself and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And another who thanked God that he was not as other men were. And we looked at our face in the communion cup 
and wondered what we were. And then we saw waking up from the American dream, the rich fool who said that his soul had gained much and that he would rest and build bigger barns and do what he wished. And then in that night, God called him forth to judgment. We saw a great sermon of grace on the Jericho Road when a, a Samaritan, synonymous almost with hatred, is called good because he stopped and helped of all people a Jew who was wounded on the road. Then Richard White spoke to us about measure for measure that we must show mercy and not be unmerciful servants because each of us need mercy. And then we saw the soul at prayer, the friend at midnight, who came and knocked on the door and kept on knocking until finally a churlish neighbor got up and gave him as many loaves of bread as we needed, as he needed. And then we learned that Jesus said, how much more will your father give good gifts to those who ask him? And then Richard preached on the second coming of Christ, an excellent sermon uh, on the mystery of the faith. And now today we come to the crowning of all parables, and it's the parable of the prodigal son. In your bulletin, I tried to reproduce. If you'll look at it there, you'll see what Rembrandt thought of as the return of the prodigal. Notice the hands especially. I have a very wonderful minister mentor whose name is Earl Palmer. He is the distinguished minister of the First Presbyterian Church in Berkeley, California. He has been here and spoken at Anderson Auditorium often. And Earl was going to Russia. And while he was in Russia, he went to the place where the original hangs of the prodigal. It's in the Hermitage Museum in Leningrad. During the days of the czars, the czars had immense wealth, and so they bought up great treasures, and there's a great collection of Rembrandt's paintings there. And Earl Palmer said that as he was looking at this painting, just struck with awe at it, and we can't do justice here to it because of the darkness of the reproduction. But if you notice the hands of the father, and he said that the in-tourist guide who was showing the painting said, notice the love of the old father, notice the father is blind. And Earl Palmer said, no, the father's not blind. And the guide said, look, I've been showing this Rembrandt painting for 15 years, and, and the, the father is blind. And Earl whipped out his pocket New Testament and said, would you like me to read you the story? of the prodigal son, when his father saw him a long way off, he said he couldn't be blind <laughs> if he saw him a long way off. And then the interest guide said, American after American after American has come through here. No one has ever pointed this out to me before. Now then, look at page 1241 in your pew Bible and let me 
try to move as quickly as possible through this great parable which hangs together with three other parables. And we can go quickly through it. Luke 15 is on page 1241 in the Pew Bible. If you will remember, Jesus had been speaking about discipleship, and then right after this comes this great, great story. Uh, he speaks first about a lost sheep. All the tax gatherers, these are publicans. They've sold out their soul to the Roman government in order to bleed white their friends and neighbors and collect tax money. And yet they were coming to Jesus to hear him and to listen to him. And now look what the grumblers in the church say. Both the Pharisees and the scribes, these are the religious leaders, began to grumble. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now you have to remember that. You may invite someone to dinner. I remember when the governor of Florida was almost lynched because one of the state departments of health had invited a Negro doctor to come and eat with her. And her supervisor fired her and Governor Leroy Collins reinstated her into her office. She was not supposed to eat with a black. Look at this. I talked to Dr. Samuel Wabi, who is here this morning, uh, uh, with whom Billy Graham visited a good long while last week. And, and Dr. Wabi told me in Egypt and in the Semitic culture, if you eat bread and take salt with someone inside your tent, then there is a bonding that takes place. And here Jesus eats with sinners. A Pharisee wouldn't do that. And so Jesus told them the story. What man of you if he has a hundred sheep and he lose one of them does not leave the ninety and nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he find it. How does a sheep get lost? A man by the name of Keller wrote a little book called A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm. And he told what those of us who grew up on farms and around farm animals know. Anytime you see an animal that is uh, an animal of herd instinct and sheep are herd instinct animals, they stick together. If you ever see a sheep off by itself and the herd of sheep someplace else, that sheep is sick. Something is wrong with it. I've seen good cow ponies in Texas that could almost spot a calf off to one distance and take you as the cowboy or the rider over to it immediately because they knew something was not right. They school together. If you ever go into an aquarium, you'll see fish and you'll see a salmon maybe that's over by himself or a shark over by himself and then you'll see these little schools of fish go by. Well, they stick together to protect each other and sheep stick together. And if one of them's off to one side, something has happened. He may be sick. I remember when Leighton Ford and I were visiting in Kenya years and years ago, 1960. We went into that huge uh, national park that's there. And one of the missionaries that we stayed with said, I want to take you through this park. And we got up 
some terrible hour in the night and went out there early in the morning and we were in a Land Rover and we were driving in the Land Rover and uh, we saw a lion. I always thought lions looked like that MGM lion on the television and that's the first lion I ever met in person. And uh, boy, you didn't have to tell me not to get out of the vehicle. That thing was huge and it was standing there munching on a zebra. And uh, we stopped off at a distance and looked. You know what happens? The zebras are together. If one of those zebras gets sick, a lion will stalk all day long looking for that sick animal. And then at just the right time, the zebras know that this one is going to satisfy the lion. So they move off a little bit. And then when the lion pounces on the sick one, the others run for it. There are a lot of Christians like that. In the military, you never want to be the point man. That means they send you out there and when you draw fire, everybody else takes for cover. Forward observers have a short life. Well, here Jesus says that this, this expendable sheep is lost. And yet the shepherd goes after it until he finds it. And then when he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders and comes back rejoicing. The parable is teaching us about lostness and it also teaches us about joy, which is the serious business of heaven. The shepherd comes back rejoicing because he's found his sheep, which was lost. One of the greatest Christians that I ever knew in my life was a dear old lady in West Texas who was a professor of English and her favorite verse in hymnody was none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed nor how dark was the night that the Lord passed through ere he found the one that was lost. And here comes the shepherd rejoicing because he has that lost sick sheep that anyone else would have let go. This tells you how to treat a backslider. What do you do? You show them love, said Jesus. And then the lost coin, an inanimate object, a coin is lost. You go from the percentage, from 99 sheep and one that's lost, to 10 coins and one that's lost. But here, God is always pictured as searching, searching, searching for that lost coin. And when that woman finds that coin, she rejoices and calls in her friends and neighbors and says, I'm so glad I found my, my coin that I'd lost. It was a part of a little bracelet that showed that she was betrothed and married and it was precious to her. And Jesus said, if a woman thinks that much about a lost coin, then how much more does God think about one of his children who is lost. And then comes the story, the greatest story ever told. There's nothing to parallel it in literature. Nothing. And he said a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. This is a terrible affront to the father. 
I don't want you, but I want what you can give me. I don't need you. You can die, but I want that money. I watched King Lear and saw Laurence Olivier at 80 playing the part of Lear. He said you had to be old in order to play it. And man, he was great. Sharper than a serpent's tooth is an ungrateful child. And here, this son insults his father. His father gives him the goods. Would you give your son the goods? It represents freedom. And not many days later, the younger son gathered together everything and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Imagine saying that to a Jewish audience. This kosher kid, this boy who had been brought up. I, rem I was telling Dr. Wabi that I remembered riding one time on an airplane on a, one of those super sea constellations many, many years ago into Rome in the early 1950s. And uh, I was sitting by uh, a Muslim, and the lady came out to serve those little sandwiches uh, up and down the aisle. And I uh, always pray over my food, and I was on the window seat, and so I got served, and I took my thing, and I bowed my head to say a little blessing. And this Muslim was sitting by me, and he saw me pray, and then he prayed. And then when we opened our little trays, he picked up a sandwich, and he dropped it. It was ham. And he wouldn't touch that pork. Imagine what a Jewish boy would feel like out eating the pods that the swine were eating. One of my friends who was a missionary in Pakistan told me that when he told this story, they would stop up their ears, the peasants, that they would turn their heads. They couldn't imagine anything lower or more debased and degraded than this. And he fain would fill his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, says the old King James, and no man gave unto him. But look at it. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough and to spare? And I am dying here with hunger. Think about that. Used to be an ad, are you smoking more and enjoying it less? Well, we're eating more and enjoying it less. We're driving faster and enjoying it less. We're polluting our planet with waste. We are a prodigal, a wasteful nation and a wasteful people. So he comes to his senses, I will get up. And that was our wonderful hymn this morning, and I love the way you sang it. I will arise and go to Jesus. Here, I will get up and go to my Father. He takes an initiative. Now he makes a proposal, and I will say to him, he makes this religious proposal, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off. You see, that's Earl Palmer's point. The father was watching, and he could see that boy a long way off. When any of us come to God, we're a long way off. He saw him a long way off, and he felt compassion. The Greek here says that his heart went out to him. And he ran, unthinkable for a man of dignity and a big estate. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. The other night when Richard was ordained, did you see his mother? From, she is from Mary's land. She is a devout Roman Catholic. <laughs> and she's a good Christian, a good, charismatic Catholic, and, and when Richard came down the aisle after being ordained up here by everyone, his mother ran out, oh, she grabbed him like and she kissed him all over the side of her face. <laughs> she was proud of her boy. She was full of tears. And Richard said later, I was a little bit embarrassed, and I said, man, don't be embarrassed. I know so many parents who are ashamed of their kids. I'm thankful to the Lord to see someone who's joyful and happy. Uh, she knows that God has done something in her son's life, and she's thankful for it. She thought he'd been elected pope. And <laughs> she, she was just wonderful and uh, ecstatic that her son was in a ministry. Uh, well, here this father runs and embraces this boy and kisses him. And then the son starts his speech. Now, he never gets through with it. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, he interrupts him. The father interrupted him. Quickly, he says, get my robe, the best one. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hands. A ring would be a signet ring, like you would put a stamp on there, and that would show that's worth some money. That would be like getting an American Express gold card. Put the ring back on his hand. He's not a slave. All God's children got shoes. Get some shoes and put them on his feet. We got to have a feast, he said. Go get that fatted calf and the... It says here, the calf that has been eating wheat, that's fattened up. Kill it and let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. They were happy. Now comes the real point of the parable. His older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summons one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. He said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Now look at the brother, the righteous one's attitude. He became angry. Anger is sort of the vice of the virtuous. It's also the prerogative of the superior. He became angry. And he would not, 
go in. He was not willing to go in. He stayed outside. He wasn't about to go in and rejoice. Now Jesus' whole point is right here. His father came out to him and began entreating him. That is speaking to him in the gentlest language. But look at this outburst of temper. Look, for so many years I've been serving you and I have never neglected a commandment of yours and yet you never gave me even a little kid, a little baby goat that I might be merry with my friends. But when this son of yours, not this brother of mine, but this son of yours has come back who has devoured your wealth with harlots. How did he know about that? He had some rumors that it floated back from the camel trains that said boy he is living it up where he is who has devoured your wealth with harlots you killed the fatted calf for him and here comes the tenderest language that Jesus ever speaks my child it's techno Johnny Ellington would would tell you that this is the affectionate, diminutive form. My dear boy, the Scots have a language, my wee, wee bairnie. Uh, it's great love. You're always with me. All that I have is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has become begun to live, he was lost, and he has been found. Now this is what Jesus wants to teach us from this. He wants us to know that we can come back to God. That he is the waiting father. That he is looking. You start toward him, and he'll run toward you. He's looking for you. You say, you don't know the things I've done. I don't have to know them. God knows them. And I know what his word says. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. I had a man who died within two hours of the time I quoted that verse to him. Say to me, how can I come to him now? We sing a hymn often just as I am. There's no other way you can come except just as you are. And here Jesus is telling us how valuable we are that God misses us when we're out of fellowship with him, when we're not where we should be, that he will welcome us back and that if we make the slightest move toward repentance that he'll come running and restore us. He's waited, and he's paid the price through his son. We have a whole generation of people that need to hear this message. This, this week was my birthday. That guy, Forbes, had a birthday, and they had a $2 million party for him out in 10 years. The elders sang happy birthday to me <laughs> Tuesday night, and I had a cake from Ingalls. And... Uh, <laughs> One of my, Nathan's wife, Margaret, is a great sense of humor. She sent me a, a card, and it said, uh, 
You know how you can tell you're getting old? It's when you jump in the air and you only move 20 seconds later. <laughs> the blast off. Well, uh, we, were, we were thinking about the father. And one of my sons gave me this book on the Freudian fallacy because he knows I got a thing about Freud. I can't stand him. And, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, he wanted me to read this book, which is an excellent book. What I always suspected was true. He was on dope when he wrote his theories. <laughs> he was a cocaine addict. He's really the prophet for this generation. Okay, now this book, which is on the Freudian fallacy, and with this I'll draw it to a close. And it speaks very well to our family life conference and how important the family is and the family reunion. Well, it's all torn to shred when that aberrant, insane, nightmarish activity that Freud thought up in his Kubla Khan cocaine dreams and then put some scientific jargon to it and allowed a lot of people to get it up. You want your freedom. Absolute freedom is absolute nonsense. We'll pollute the planet, blow ourselves to smithereens, destroy each other if we go at it that way. Poor old Karl Marx said that the opiate of the people was religion. The opiate of the people is the media. The opiate of the people is television in the United States. Okay, and you see some of this come in. In retrospect, the permissive society can be seen as a spontaneous experimental situation almost made to order for the assessment of the Freudian theory in actual practice. By the end of the 1960s, all the original goals set by, set by the standard bearers of the new morality had been achieved. Neither social taboos nor legal restraints remained to frustrate the full implementation of Freud's social philosophy. But did the newly liberated generation achieve the mental health that this promised? The hard data, the rates for attempted suicide, the occupancy of mental hospitals, all tell us that the reverse has occurred. Suicide, for example, had by the 70s become the most frequent cause of death in American universities. Crime rates were soaring. The numbers of children in care had multiplied. The figures hardly gave credence to a picture of a happy society. Less tangible but still discernible is the impoverishment of art and literature long under the do domination of Freud's pessimistic determinism. Then it, this is the summary of it. By the end of the 1970s, the neo-Freudians had moved on from eros to thanatos, a rash of books and articles on the subject of death and dying, the last taboo. They illustrated the mood of the day, symptomatic perhaps of the mortal sickness of the movement. The beginning of the 1980s saw a society weighed down with the social problems left in the wake of the permissive society. The promised land had proved to be a stony desert and Freud, who had pointed the way, 
a false and faithless prophet. I started out today, I nearly went off without my Bible, and Johnny Ellington said, uh, if you take Freud, you don't need the Bible. <laughs> well, I take Freud because I want to show that he supersede, the Bible supersedes him by a long way. The Bible tells us to come back to God. It tells us the story that'll be standing when the stars go out, when this earth may be blown to smithereens by people who want it their own way. It tells us of a father who freely forgave the one who had sinned against him. And it tells us that God is able to take us when we bring our wills back to him and put in our hands a new freedom that's controlled by his love and his mercy and his goodness and that will expand that love to others. There's an old hymn, Make Me a Captive Lord and then I shall be free. Make me to render up my sword, then I shall conqueror be. Let us stand and be dismissed with prayer. We're <clears throat> if you've never made a confession of your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, one of our deacons will be here at the front and we'll be glad to talk to you. It's very important how you respond when the grace of God is extended. And the waiting Father waits to receive you. And you can come to him right now. You don't even have to raise your hand or sign a card or walk the aisle. Those are all good. But you can come to him in your heart right now. And some of you who are parents of prodigals, don't be embarrassed. God had trouble with his children too. Love your children. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, we are thy poor and sinful children who wandered away from home. It was a weary, weary work to live with our sins. And some of us would never have come home at all except that our elder brother, the Lord Jesus himself, has come after us. He's the good elder brother and he loves us and has brought us back to you. For those who have not come back, take them back today, right now in their hearts as they offer their hearts to you. And enable us, O oh God, to be so loving that we may make it easy for those who have wasted an opportunity to come back. Help the amazing grace which we have received to be shown to others too. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our great teacher and guide, be and abide with us all now and forevermore.